six of snakes and stogies. Phil's late. What else is new? Actually, that's not true. He has two minutes. How's everybody doing? Uh, show is brought to you by Puget Sound Pythons. They're joining us in the chat here. Uh, so Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Please follow Jeff and Kendra doing some really cool stuff. They got scrubs. They got liasis. They got all kinds of stuff. Um, balls, really cool clown stuff. Um, they have very good tastes in in their collection. They're, uh, what is that? Oh, there's a giant mole cricket climbing at my feet. Um, I'm not running solo, Cox. I'm waiting on Phil to get here, so. As usual, what else is new? Uh, tonight we are going to be doing the raffle for all the stuff I got down here for the Snake Stogies raffle. It's going to be benefiting uh, Asclepius Snakebite Foundation. Um, there's a couple spots left. I think we're oh, there. He is. <clears throat> You're late. No, I'm not. I have like 48 seconds left. <laughs> uh, well, I just got done with the general intro stuff and was telling people that we're doing our drawing for the ASF. Yes. Um, I don't know if you want to do that now. You want to do it later. I figured we'd, we'd if anybody's watching this and they want to get a slot, there's, I think, seven left maybe. Uh, go into the Snakes and Stogies Facebook group and see the post that I made. Slots are $20 a pop. You can get up to three slots. And so we got some sidecar cases cigar with cigars in them. Uh, got three different prizes. And it's all going to be benefiting ASF. So if you haven't got a spot yet, do it. Or if you got a spot and you don't, you want another one, do it. Totally. Um, me and Phil, like we don't pocket any of this. Like once it covers the cost of the actual items, whatever's left goes to ASF. Uh, yeah. So. Hundred percent. I got, I got the little Powerball thing ready. I got all the numbers in there, and we're ready to go. So. Excellent. Well, do you want to? You want to? Well, you know what? Let's do this. You already talked about the fine people of Puget Sound Pythons. Yes. Excellent. Okay. Um, by the way, how's my audio with this microphone set up? It's setup? good. All right. Excellent. Um, I actually have a a teaser for our next cigar raffle, and I'm going to hang on to it. Oh. I, I wanted to go get that. Um, if we can do that, so why don't you? Keep things rolling. I'm going to grab that real quick, and we can show that off. And then, what you know, right. why don't we start doing the questions too? We'll we'll jump into that. And then yeah, I'll. Uh, we didn't we didn't talk about those last week, so right. Uh, first off, important. There we go. Cherry blade. <sighs> Cherry blade lemonade. Um, let's get to the questions of the week. Ba, 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 ba. 
Let's scroll. Yikes. So the cigar question of the week was, do you have a local cigar shop you frequent? If yes, do you feel comfortable or intimidated asking the tobacconist questions? Which I know some some shops can be kind of intimidating. Some of them are a little higher brow, uh, a little fancier, so they think. And that can be intimidating to some people. And that can be intimidating to some people. So that's something I've always I'm always curious about because I can definitely see it working at a shop. I can tell people that are like they want to ask questions, but they're kind of like they're not going to come and find you. But you can tell they're really shopping around, not exactly sure what they're looking at. You know, I can tell by body language, watching people on the camera and stuff in the humidor, who kind of knows what they're after and who's sort of either shopping but knows what they want or just plane doesn't have a clue where to start so uh, the I'll question was say, i'll say ahead. real quick that there's plenty of times that I, I like to think i'm but nowhere near an expert but i don't know nearly as much as justin on the topic however i know what i like and i know enough to get in trouble um and i can't tell you how many times i've gone into a shop and the tobacconist maybe said like hello or do you need some help and i at first i'm like no and then i maybe change my mind i go you know what yeah, do you have this or did you get this or that? And there's been times when I've been blown away. And then there's been times more frequent than not that the guy had left, no idea. Left what he was something doing. to be desired. Yeah, had no idea what he was doing. And again, I'm kind of I'm I'm still I'm still novice in terms of the knowledge base. So although I do know a fair bit and I've been doing this a long time. I don't know a third the thing. I don't. I don't know a sixteenth the stuff that Justin does because the guy does it day in and day out. So, don't be afraid to ask questions. But at the same time, if the guy or gal who's helping you doesn't necessarily uh, know what you're asking or know what they're doing per se, don't poo-poo it. Don't write it off. Just you know, oh, thank you very much, and then find someone who does. Because if it you did have the gumption to do it you might as well get the information from the right person. So and in the tobacconist defense to a degree, if they're just flat out assholes, then there is real, no real excuse, but sure. We get asked a lot of the same questions day in and day out too, which I'm sure anybody working any sort of service job, retail restaurant, whatever, um, you know, exactly what I'm talking about. And for me, it's always, you know, you guys have Cubans. I had a guy in just the other day, he was from out of town or something. He's like, you guys have any like secret stash of Cubans that you sell? Because there are some shops, believe it or not, that will, they have Cubans stashed away, but you have to like ask somebody and that person has to like approve. Like there's, it's a weird sort of speakeasy kind of thing. And we don't do that. Um, or, or they're selling knockoffs that are rolled down the street at yeah. the local place as Cubans, you know? How come this cigar doesn't have a band on it? Oh, you can't bring them in with the bands. They'll know. <laughs> so. But, yeah, I mean, if you're, I, I know there are some shops. Uh, I mean, I've been in a few where the person, A, didn't look terribly happy to see me, which could just be there. That's just how they are personality-wise. It could have nothing to do with the business itself. But It happens. Um, I know personally, I try and I know the other guys that work with me, we try to make it very 
I won't necessarily say blue collar, but we want it to be a relaxed environment where people feel like they can ask us something. Right. You know, I like, I can, I help people all the time too. I have wives and stuff that come in, you know, I'm buying something for my husband. It's our anniversary. So you, you're always going to have that. And that's easy because it's, you know, ask the usual questions of how often do they smoke? How do they like their coffee? Like things like that will sort of guide us in the direction of what they're probably going to like. Um, but that, that it's an intimidating thing, especially for newer people. And I know people in, in the snakes and Sogies group have talked about it. Um, you know, they go into a shop and they're like, I'm, I don't know what there's just, you, you're yeah. so overwhelmed with the paradox of choice that some people just don't know where to start. And they're kind of afraid to ask questions. Cause it is a lot like wine in that regard too. I know personally, when I go to the wine section at our local liquor store down the street or the, uh, we have a grocery store that has a massive wine section. Like I'm not super hip to wine. I kind of like it. I don't have a clue what I'm doing. And that liquor store in particular that has that wine section, like their wine person is he's not terribly friendly. Yeah. And so usually then when it's like, I want to buy wine, that's kind of the last place I want to go because I don't want to be made to feel like an idiot. Right. Right. Uh, and so I think having experienced that myself, it does help me translate that over to like, I don't want that to be the case when people walk in the door. Sure. And that's, that's a great way to think about it too, because I can't tell you how many times I've been discouraged, especially like when I was much younger and like really just getting into cigars and like, you go into the, the the humidor and you ask the person that's there, hey, you know, I'm looking for something X, Y, and Z. And they give you the eye roll and they give you that look like another beginner, like that kind of thing. Don't let that discourage you. That person's just a jerk. You know what I mean? Or maybe they're just burnt out. Yeah. You know, just and just be positive about it. And, you know, that's it. So. Sorry, we're the question the, one more time. The question was, do you have a local shop, uh, cigar shop you frequent? If yes, do you feel comfortable or intimidated asking the tobacconist questions? Uh, Cody White said, yes, there is a shop just down the street, and I feel comfortable asking questions. My questions are usually, I like this uh, and this, but I want to try something new. Um, I'm not usually blown away by their suggestions, but also not disappointed, and I'd buy that stick again. Okay. Uh, and that's that is kind of another thing. Like if you ask suggestions, everyone's palate's different. We don't know what your palate is. We can give you something that's pretty like it'll either be spot on or it'll be close or it just won't be it at all. Like we can't taste it for you is kind of the what I tell people. Um Yeah. Because people ask, how does it taste? And I'm like, I kind of depends on who you ask. Like one person might say it's peppery as hell. One person might say it's not, you know, it just it's Everyone's taste buds are different. Yeah. Uh, yep. Matt West said, I have three main cigar stores that I go to. The owner of one store knows more than me, but I know more than all of the employees at, that at the other stores combined. I don't feel intimidated by any of them, especially the ones that know more than me. I like to learn. Uh, and that is one thing that's more that's super frustrating to me. We used to have a kid that worked for us uh, part-time, and he wasn't a cigar smoker. And... To me, there's nothing dumber than someone walking in and saying, "Hey, can you recommend a cigar?" And the employee says, "Oh, I don't smoke." Yeah, I mean that's like I mean, like when some you... like a, a wine person saying, "Oh, I can't recommend anything I don't drink." Yeah, you don't go into Starbucks and say, "Hey, how do you think about this new Sumatran blend?" And they go, "Oh, I don't drink coffee," or better yet, "I've never tasted coffee. I don't like the smell of it." Like, really? Yeah, it's just just bizarre. 
then our buddy Jake Hansen over in Australia, he actually, we started working on that Chondro puzzle he sent me like a year ago, two years ago. We started on it and it was, it's actually really hard. So we kind of threw in the towel and then the other last night I said, let's break it back out and, and get it done. It's a thousand pieces and it's ridiculously difficult. Uh, Jake said cigar smoking is very small fringe pastime in Australia. So there are just a handful of brick and mortar cigar stores in the entire country. Our stores tend to be very Cuban cigar centric and focus more on the upper class wanker image of cigar smoking, which is a big turnoff to me. So I strictly use online stores. Fair enough. Uh, our buddy Vic at JBB's Reptiles. My local store has a female tobacconist, and she's pretty knowledgeable and approachable. I never had any issues asking questions or taking her advice. Will Jordan, who is a regular frequenter of Beaufort Tobacco, said, great shop, but the bearded guy behind the counter can be a little iffy at times. <laughs> uh, Dan Colgan said, no, the shop owner here is a prick. I say, hey, Justin, send me some good shit. <laughs> All right. Uh, and Dylan Peerless said, my local shop has been a big help. I go in on Thursday or Friday to talk uh, to a specific worker. Couldn't be happier with the selection, which is good. And over nice. time, you know, you do develop, like, we have a ton of regulars at work. And I, I talk to them more than I talk to a lot of my extended family, honestly. Like, I have family that lives 15 minutes away, and I talk to some of these regulars more times in a week than I'll talk to that, that family in, like, a year. As that's why, that that's is. why they're regulars. But it gets to the like I have some come in, they want to change it up. And I because I've I've built a relationship with them, a rapport and stuff, like I know sort of what their I know their palette. And so I have a it makes it much easier for me to recommend something and find something that's sort of that I think is gonna be up their alley. And I think that's kind of that's a cool part of the job is like someone can walk in that you know and they say, Give me something, and you just walk back there and grab it and give it to them, and then they're they're more than happy with it you know that's that's a big high for me for the job is when someone wants a recommendation they come back in a week later two weeks later and they're like that was awesome i want more that's what really rustles my jimmies it's the way to do it man i'm trying to find the other question where did it go uh completely unprepared story of our lives my friend stand by Ugh, let me search it up real quick damn yeah the um i mean you can you can take that that mantra that philosophy and apply it to all facets of, of retail shopping is that there is your classic jobs that are say a high school job or a stepping stone job, you know, I'm not necessarily looking for the exact, you know, dairy craftsmanship from a 16 year old working at Dairy Queen. I I'm not, but when I go into, you know, like, like Justin said, a, a wine place, like a, a wine cellar or something to that extent, I expect them to have a general knowledge of the products that they're repping, whether it be, uh, mm -hmm a bait and tackle store, you know, or uh, even an auto dealership. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, you probably want to know something about cars. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I think that uh, it's good to, it's difficult to overcome the hesitation to ask the questions, but there are people just like us. So you'll never know if you don't ask. So I'd rather ask a question and maybe look dumb for all they for the, all they know. But yeah. 
at least I'd asked the question. At least I, at least I knew that I did it. You know what I mean? And once again, everyone started at zero. Exactly. Even the person that's working at that shop, myself included. I used to like the first cigars that I really got into were Rocky Patel Edge Maduros, which I, I cannot smoke them now. I just I'm not into them. Like they just don't taste to me. Yeah. And now that I've had a bunch of other stuff, it just to me, they're just not that great. Like it's good. It's OK stick. It's not bad. Uh, and then the Java's where I was a big smoker of the Java's. I literally cannot even finish Java's now. Yeah. Like your palate changes over time. So, sure. you know, when I was first starting out, I was like, Java's are good. I like the acids a little bit, not as much. I liked a little more subtlety in this, in the sweetness. Um, and I mean, that was awesome. Like I'd get recommendations. I, there was one, I remember one time I walked in there and there was this guy that was working part-time. I never really met him. This was before I started working there. This is like when I was just getting into cigars and I walked in, I saw the LFD diggers, which nice. is like 52 by eight or something ridiculous. <laughs> they're long. They're really dark, double Lajero, super strong. And I was like, Oh, well, what's up with those? And the guy was like, Oh, you don't, you want that after like you eat a big steak dinner. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And now every time I look at diggers, I think about that. Um, nice but i mean there was a point where i had no clue and i just i was just smoking whatever caught my eye like that's how i got into the romacraft stuff i remember seeing those and thinking like how simple all the packaging was in the band and stuff like that and i was like that looks that looks pretty good and hooked yeah i'm smoking a kahonu 2006 from tatuaje nice this is my my last neanderthal that justin gave me box pressed and uh i'm enjoying the hell out of it tonight so yeah. It's the LH. LH. Yep. Mm. Was there any more uh, answers? Yeah, there's no, not on the cigar one. But the Herbert question was because of, I got the Ackies and stuff. I put them in yeah. a Python portal setup. I was curious what people's thoughts were. Uh, DIY cages like the Python portals on tubs, or would you rather just buy PVC cages outright? Uh, and our buddy, Dr. Wyman said situation dependent short-term quarantine, a portal, a portal setup is nice as you get the visibility of the cage, but it's a bit more disposable quote unquote, but cage for long-term housing because it has a dirt has the durability factor. So yeah. Cody Wikes also commented on this one. He said, I prefer the looks of PVC cages for sure. It would be awesome to have everything match. Christian Parr said, I think both have their place. I much rather big, nice enclosures for my animals. However, cheap, quick setups are perfect for quarantine or grow out enclosures. Andrew Keith said he prefers PVC cages post quarantine, but not opposed to DIY tote type setups, depending on the species. Dan Colgan said PVC cages are great. If you don't mind waiting half a year, um, <laughs> I would do portals for animals that haven't reached maturity, but order the PVC the second they hatch. <laughs> saying prepare yourself yeah right see i don't know man like the the i gotta say the python portals and the drago portals from brahms special team closure designs check them out um i have a couple different sizes of, of that i use those on and i they've they've really they've they've come in clutch multiple equate uh on multiple occasions you know like yeah they don't look pretty but if you're gonna have something in a tub it's going to make it look better, especially if you get sure. a light in there. Like they look pretty sharp. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm kind of with, was it, was it Doc Wyman who said that the first was the first response? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's, I like, I have animals that have lived their entire t lives in tub and they've been happy as a clam. 
and I've got other animals where it started off in a tub for mm-hmm. quarantine issues or for general, you know, visual maintenance on them, um, you know, paper towels or, you know, inkless newspaper. And I want to watch the fecal. I want to watch the urine. And, yeah. and if there's any blood in the cage, all that jazz. So that serves a purpose. And then what I've done before is I've augmented the tub. So it starts off with a super simple sterile setup. And then maybe I'll add substrate. Maybe I'll add a live plant. Maybe I'll change up and you know do humid hide and however it is. And I also like the tub too because I can regulate airflow. I can regulate humidity. Nobody wants to drill extra holes in a really nice PVC enclosure. But a tub, pff, I'll drill it. I'll melt it, whatever. I don't care. I'll just buy another one. You know what I mean? They're, they're cheap enough to do that. But I think it would be 10 times better if I had PVC enclosures, but I'm not going to go out and buy a PVC enclosure without having first learned how things need to be with that species for me. Does that make sense? Yeah. So like here, I have a photo I'll share real quick. Um, This is literally my current setup for most of the drink calls. And you can see here, these are simple tubs. Mm-hmm. Right. And the way that I have these designed, well, I mean, it's a tub. Let's be real. There's there's uh, six latches. So one on each end and four on the sides, just in case they are gasket sealed. The gasket's gray. You really can't see it. Um, I have the sex ratio in electrical tape just for now, just so I know it's not going to fade or peel away or whatever. Right. And then I have the air holes strategically positioned so that the airflow goes from one side diagonal to the other. And when I walk in the room, all the air holes are facing away from humans because I don't oh, want yeah. the cobra to spit and venom to shoot through the hole. So on this side of the tub, on, on essentially what you're looking at, the right side of the tubs, there's only two air holes right behind this latch just to allow the pressure. So it's not like, uh, you know how if you're driving the car, one window is open, the rest aren't, and you get that, that, brrr, yeah, sound. that weird pressure. Kind right. Of so, thing. so just yeah. to equalize the pressure, there's two little pilot holes on the, on the right side of each tub. And then the back is fully ventilated and then strategically on the left side is ventilated. Um, But if you look up here, I have this Lucagaster. I just put a bunch of air holes on top and that thing's lived in there for years. Yeah. And it's easy. Eventually, I will have PVC cages for all these wrinkles. But for now, for the first couple of years, for the first year, a couple of years, I mean, I actually just put them all on substrate. This picture is a little old, but I think it's a good transition. And you know what? If I find out that it works and I keep it like that forever, so be it. As long as they're happy. Yeah. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of also the opinion if it works, it works. So I also think if you're going to keep something that requires you to do something bigger with a PVC, right. be it Hackies, be it Ganyasoma, <laughs> be it any of that stuff, then do that. I mean, for Chondros, these were perfect because when you have some that are that awkward size where they're too small to go into something bigger, but they're too big to stay in what they're oh, in yeah. having these as an option or even quarantine. Like, cause I've, I've kept all of them. I don't want to get rid of them. Like there's no point, right. you know, they're, they're the ones I use were the 200 quart Rubbermaids, I think. And I mean, there's just, it doesn't, it's nice to have them on hand in case I need them. Um, sure. Of course you can never have too many extra spare tubs. But I'm also a guy that kind of go like I'm more of a utility over aesthetics kind of thing. Like I don't really care if it's ugly. 
Sure. As long as it works and does its job and does it well, then I'm happy. Because I also I don't have a ton of people coming in and out of my room or anything like that. It's pretty much just me. So, right. That's kind of where I stand on it. I mean, I do like PVC. I do like you know the matching stuff, especially the racks like from Black Box and stuff. Those are awesome. Um, but in a pinch, these Python portal setups are awesome. Yeah, and I also I like that if I like that you did, for lack of a better word. It is still a simple setup with the Aki's. It's not overly mm -hmm. elaborate. You can still move stuff easily and make it look the same as you first had it. But it allows you to monitor the babies and make sure, ha, monitor. It allows you <laughs> to mon monitor the babies and make sure that they're all eating the same amount of food. They're all pooping the same. And as time goes on, as they grow, as they mature, as you learn them better, maybe you do put them in a PVC. But you know what? If I you plan don't, to. Yeah, you, you plan to, but let's say you don't. Let's say you say, you know what? They're working out great in these tubs. Maybe I'll just do one or two lizards per tub. Whatever. Mm -hmm. As long as the animal's happy and you're enjoying it, that's all that matters. Elijah said I, I'll, he'll be expecting a full AZA accredited zoo style tour of my room. <laughs> nice, nice. Pretty small. It's not, it's, it's not going to be I a pretty short video. The AZA would shit a kitten if they saw your room. <laughs> yeah, <definitely>. So, <clears throat> um, yeah, I mean, the Aggies are doing really well in that. And I mean, I've already, I'm already talking to Alan and talking to Jen at Black Box about sort of what route I should go as far as an adult cage and basically preparing and knowing what I'll need. Sure. Uh, ahead of time, because I kind of figured that this 200 quart wouldn't last them terribly long, like maybe a couple months at best. Um, given what I've heard as far as how fast those things grow. But this tub's working out. I mean, temperatures, it's definitely up the temperature in the room. Like, I've had to turn all the thermostats down a little bit because it's it's bumped the ambient up so much. Um, but it's working out great. Good. The uh, I, I actually, I know most of the people that are watching this live and most of the people that interact with us, they've seen your new little baby demons. Uh, but do you want to send me a couple pictures? I'll throw them up real quick. Let me see. Especially the setup, since we're talking about tubs and por Python portals and such. Yeah. Send away, my friend. You never realize how many pictures you take. Oh, yeah. Oh, until yeah. Until you have to send some. And uh, for those of you, while we're waiting for Justin to do that, uh, I had some of my wrinkles were kind of gross. Uh, they have a tendency to swim around on their own pee pee and, uh, they had shed and I didn't want that, you know, uric acid to be, you know, festering on them cause they are in tubs. Mm -hmm. So I gave them uh, a little, uh, little bath time. So for those who didn't see when I post on Facebook, uh, I put a little bit on Instagram, but here is some yes, bill. Bad Bill guy. Bradley sent me a Zilla Pro Soul, and that thing is awesome. Nice. You want to talk about freaking it. hot? That's the way to do it. Struggling? Uh, yeah, the um, the laptop it doesn't like live photos, so I have to turn the photos like to normal. You know what I mean? So. Here's one of my uh, oh, yeah. that's a male. 
Yeah. And for those of you who are unaware, uh, Rengals have several different defense mechanisms. One of them is to feign death. Uh, basically, they will play dead just like a hog nose snake will. They're hog noses. They're hog noses. They're African hog noses. They'll invert themselves. They'll stick their tongue out the side. They'll open their mouth. Uh, they'll musk. And you can, it's, it's really creepy. You can pick them up and they'll be completely limp. But the minute you get to like where their hood is or like their tail tip, they will wake up with a fury. Um, in all Gosh, the bitch. years, right? All the years I've been doing <laughs> this, I've all the years I've been doing this, I've never seen one do it. And I guess this particular specimen was a, a little dehydrated. And when I went to scoop him up, he did it. So there he is in all of, in all, <laughs> in all of his glory. And, and the funny part is I only put like, maybe two centimeters of water there's barely any just honestly just enough for him to you know maybe maybe a half an inch just enough to swim through it so like there's no chance he's going to drown yeah and you could see that when he inverted uh his nose is still out of the water and i thought that was, <laughs> that was and you can see he has like this little arc to his tail i want to play dead but i still have to breathe exactly and I just I saved these for tonight because I had never seen it in person. I literally started screaming That's like hilarious. a little like a girl at a Justin Bieber concert. I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> and this is him. I am dead. I am dead. Just I literally like I, I just used one hook. I didn't tail him or anything because I didn't know how what he was going to do if he was going to wake up and freak yeah. out. But I just scooped his ass up and just flopped him in there <laughs> gently, and it's just like I'm dead. So the most and the only he, reason they continue to do that is because you left them alone after you moved them. They're like, hey, mm -hmm. it worked. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so all this and uh, <laughs> I literally I had I threw a rat pup in there and then I closed the lid and then I moved the tub. And then all you hear is the rat pup, you know, fighting for its poor little life. And Screaming. I was like, oh, I guess I guess he uh, he woke up from his nap. <laughs> so but yeah, I'd never seen it in person and. I mean, granted, it probably wasn't, it's probably not the best thing to see. Obviously, the animal's stressed. Obviously, the animal's, you know, uh, he was he was clearly dehydrated to the point where he couldn't fight for whatever reason. Maybe he couldn't find his water dish. I don't know. But I let him get a good long drink, and I made sure that, you know, it went down his gullet, and he wasn't going to yak up any water. And then this happens. So, but he ate the wrap-up. Here's another one. No. Got all glistening. That's a zebra carpet, dude. I know, right? Oh, I love it. I, I love how the water beads off the keeled scales. Mm -hmm. So there's a couple more pictures, and then I'll I'll stop because they all look the same. <clears throat> these pictures, there, that's you, the one with the flag. You've given me a, a much better appreciation for these because before I was like, yeah, they're cool. Yeah, man. Then, dude, I have Ryan. I have Ryan Cox to thank. They're not a real cobra, but they're cool. No, they're, they're su superior lapid. Hmm. So, all right, let me get your pictures and we'll throw them up. These Aggies are awesome, man. <clears throat> Every, like I'm cleaning, I was cleaning all day yesterday. Uh, changing new water changes on everybody and stuff. And every time I was cleaning out a water bowl, like I'm looking over at the tank, just watching to see if they're like out and about. And I have my little wise cam pointed on their cage so I can check it on it at work and like see them right. running around and throwing uh crickets in there and watching them get all excited and then like chase them and it's freaking cool yeah man hell yeah uh, they, I, they were 
they were calm and stuff when I first got them, obviously, because they were pretty cold for a lizard, at least. We're talking like 80s. That's cold for them. Yeah. Um, now that they're warmed up, they'll, they'll let me get kind of close. But like the moment I go to like touch them, they're like, yeah, no. And they take off. So nice. Gonna work on that. Got to give them some more time to sort of settle and stake their their claim as far as the territory and stuff in there and get adjusted. But they don't run away. Like they see me, they'll sleep out in the open. But if I go in there, yeah, if I go in there and try to touch them, they're like, nah. And dude, they're so tiny. Like you, these pictures until you, until I show the next picture, like you just can't comprehend how tiny they are. You know, that's and Marv you, on the right and Henriette on the left. Oh, great names. Great names. I'm pretty sure. And I saw this picture. I was like, oh, man, they're good size. And I was like, wait a minute. That's his finger. Yep. Wow. We're talking about like the the female is maybe the size of like the most diesel green and oil you've ever seen. Really? The male is about the size of sort of your standard green and oil. Male. That's awesome. Male, male green and all. Like they're not, <laughs> they're not big. And I was kind of worried. I was like, man, I was thinking they were going to be a little bigger than they actually were. And so I was like, this 200 cord is going to be, I'm worried it might be a little tight. And then I got them. I was like, oh, dude, that's a freaking mansion for them. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then you did the soil that, um, uh, what the hell was that mix? That's just a, a place in topsoil mixture. Okay. okay. I didn't do anything fancy. Okay, cool. Okay. It's it not an ABG good. or anything, right? No, no. Yeah, okay. Cool, man. I did about equal parts sand to, to topsoil. And then there that the white lid and the is the their sort of like humid hide dig box, which they haven't even really been using. Um I saw the male in it the other day just looking around, but he didn't actually start digging. But that's got a little more sand in that mixture to kind of let them tunnel down some. A little so. loomier. Yeah. Cool, man. Awesome. And I cut a hole in it. That was before I cut the hole in it. I was just kind of figuring out placement with that picture and sort of how I wanted things. And Oh, hold on. I forgot there's one more picture. Hang on. Went out to the beach and got a bunch of driftwood. Some nice oak bark and palmetto bark and that oak log that you see going across the cage. Yeah. And, and that's a 200 to, cord. I was like, kudos to the Python portal being straight, you know? You know, the only reason that's the case is there's a little, like, tiny lip that goes around the top of that. Oh, yeah? And I use that as my guide. Like, I'd have the top of the the frame resting on that lip, and that's how I managed to get it straight. Nice. I would take more credit for it, but I, I can't. But I like those tubs in particular because the, the lids, those things are snug. Like, those... Those clips are pretty heavy duty. And, yeah. Uh, you definitely need to get pictures of the lights next time you get a chance. Mm -hmm. That way uh, we can see how you did like the re recessed light into the plastic lid. Yeah, that was so there was originally a. Uh, like lid hide with the slide error and the upside down. Yeah. Plastic hide from, from um, special also from Bronze, Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then there was a radiant heat panel on the other side. So I took both those off, kind of figured out my light placement, drilled my holes. You had to take these little brackets off to mount the light itself before you put the light in. Right. I cut some holes on the side for the cords because there's two cords, one for each side of that light, like a day and a night sort of deal. And 
cut holes on the side of the tub for those to come out of that. Cool. Um, so the lid can still sort of drop in and do its thing. And I mean, I think those things hold temperature so well, like nice. That's the one thing about this Python portals. I love is temperature and humidity were almost, they never were an issue. Like they were, those those 200 cords are big enough to where you can have an RHP on one side and not have any issues and it not be too hot and you know they're it's the it's a good size for for a lot of stuff um and Bill wants to know what the dimensions are of those 200 cords I'm about to look it up nice well while you do that um for those who don't know uh a good friend of mine is fairly Instagram famous his name is Mike Holston he's the Tarzan guy I refuse to call him that, um, but I love him like a brother. And he actually has been doing his homework secretly for some time because he really wanted to work with Bolins. Um, and he basically got to a point where he had done enough homework to, to get into them. And he made sure that he had his temperatures and caging and humidity and all that squared away. Um, so he got his first one and uh, he got it from someone in Texas, I guess, that had bred them at some point. Um, and this, I believe, is a four or five-year-old male. Um, and he set it up. I'm trying to get the photo. He set it up and he, he FaceTimed me and was like, hey, man, how's this look? And I said, well, I've never kept them. But, I mean, from what I see, that looks spot on. I said, I would maybe, maybe try one of these, try one of those, you know, ask some other people that own the freaking snakes, you know. And, uh, and this is what he came up with. And I'm... What the hell happened to this picture? Um, I'm, I'm really proud of him for setting this up because, you know, him and I come from a, a world of newspaper and ceramic water bowls. You know what I mean? And this cage is um, eight foot. Let me find this. Hold on. Sorry, guys. I'm a little discombobulated. So this Bill, is the, the dimensions real quick on that tub are 39.75 yeah. by 21 and a half or 21.5 by 17.88. So pretty big. Awesome. It ends up being like 50 gallons. Yeah. The, those tubs are deceiving because Justin is so gigantic that he makes them look smaller than they I really could, are. I could, I could live in one. Yeah. They're, they're pretty massive. So, so this is Mike's new, newest Boland's enclosure. And, uh, this is basically just to get things going and in, excuse me, in time, he plans on building a bigger, more naturalistic enclosure. This is kind of his uh, just get things going kind of plateau, but he's got uh, multiple different types of UV, B and A on top. Um, let me get my cursor here. UV, A and B on tops because he was told by one breeder to go with something like this. And he was told by somebody else to go with something like that. So he says, you know what, let me give him whatever he needs and he can kind of find what's what. Um, there is multiple thermal gradients in this enclosure. So this is eight foot by three foot by four foot deep. And it's a custom PVC. And obviously it's two panes of glass that slide. Um, there's a humid hide down here. Uh, these are live plants. Uh, there's some, some, reconstituted moss on the back with some fake plants. This is a running waterfall that goes to an RO system. And then there's also a separate fogger. So the fogger, so essentially this will be more of a dry area here. Uh, there's another hide up top. Then you have all these vines and stuff up here. And then I, he actually didn't know about uh, Brahms and specialty enclosure design. So I told him about the, 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 the tracks 
for the black plastic hides. So he's probably going to do one or two of those. But <clears throat> I just thought that this was relative to what we were just talking about, where this you could do a tub, but you can also do PVC. And it comes mm -hmm. down to what is going to suit your needs best and what's going to be best for your critter, you know? And there's no reason why you can't go from PVC to a tub or vice versa. You know, just because Justin and I start off in a tub and then as the animal grows or matures or whatever, it goes to a PVC, it could be the opposite. You know, he may find that this giant, beautiful enclosure doesn't work right. And if it doesn't work, then he's got to alter it. So time will tell. But I thought that was pretty cool. He about find that out today. And uh, yeah, I hope he doesn't get mad that I showed this. <laughs> I don't know, Henry. Henry asked, does he need to have some colder air coming in? He does. He actually has a separate air conditioning unit specifically for that room. And that's the only animal in that room. Um, he has uh, blower fans uh, that will essentially pull air from the room to put it into the enclosure. And then on the other end, I don't know if it's the top or the bottom, he has another fan system pulling air out. So there's a, a kind of a, a, a constant uh, fresh air flow. But right now, I think he said the the ambient in the room is like 69 for now. And just to kind of see how things go. But we, I, I didn't have time to really talk to him too much about it. And I don't really know a lot about bones. So I wasn't very much help to him. But I thought that was pretty awesome. And uh, I hope it pans out well. So, How were the field I doing? Uh, they're doing great. They both ate uh, a live hopper mouse each. They probably could take an adult mouse, but I didn't want to give them too much fur because I don't know. I don't know what they were eating in the wild. They're completely field collected. So if it's been living on lizards its whole life and all of a sudden I give it a bunch of mammal fur, I don't know if that's going to mess up the GI tract. So just to get some meals in them and get some 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 blood and guts and stuff in them, I went with a much smaller prey item. But they both ate it and they ate it through overnight. I literally threw live in, checked a couple hours later, the mice were gone. So uh, I did. So I had them for 10 days, fed them. Now I'm going on almost another 10 days. I'll probably feed them Wednesday again. So, but they're doing good. They're they're easy peasy. It's crazy how all that Saharan and Near Eastern species—they are a completely different monster at night. You know, in the day they're kind of just sitting there. They kind of don't do anything. You can use one hook and just scoop them up and move them. And then at night there's the huffing and the puffing and the saw scaling, and it's it's pretty impressive at night. So, thanks for asking, Dan. I'm checking to make sure we don't have any more slot buys. And then I guess we can go ahead and do the drawing and then we can get into some Toxicodryas Boiga Telescopus stuff. 100%, man. I actually I broke out Dr. Fry's book. I got some links that I wanted to throw up. So uh, this will be fun. I'm excited. Do we want to go ahead and do the drawings now? Yeah, you know what? The live show has been going for, what, 48 minutes now? So I say now is a good enough time as any. Let me make sure. Okay, so last call. There are...
One, two, three, four, five, six, seven slots left. $20. 20 bucks to a fantastic cause and if you're a chance in, to win. If you're in the chat and you're wanting a slot, speak now or forever hold your peace. Give 30 Give seconds. 30 seconds. 30 seconds. During those 30 seconds, anyone who thought that it it might be a good idea to keep Elapids, this this picture should, in theory, discourage you. In theory. In theory. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's horrible. That is about, about 10 days. I'll be honest. That's about 10 days. Yep. So I'm not proud of that, but you know what? It happens. And now they're on substrate for a reason. <laughs> so that'll, that'll help me main, maintain that a little better. Are we rolling? We're actually rolling. I'm, the ball. I'm, I'm, no, I'm getting it mixed up. Nice and good. Nice. Wait, hold on. Eli says he's sending 20 bucks right now. Hold on. Uh, you send it to snakesandstogies at gmail.com and I have slots number one, five, eight, 22, 24, 26, and 28 open. Should we give him another five minutes? Well, yeah. All right. Why don't I, Elijah just sent another one. Elijah, he said dealer's choice on slot. You can get number five. How about that? Nice. Good number. Billy Jenkins says he claims 22. Okay. How many more are left after those two? Three. No. Three. Four. Four. There's four. only four left, guys. Come on. Come on. Let's do it. So all the money is going to the Escapolis Snakebite Foundation. Basically helping <laughs> impoverished people in faraway lands. We are saving lives. Legitimately saving lives. Research about snakes, research about snake That's... venom and toxins. Oh, I should have worn my I shirt was, tonight. I was going to wear this yesterday and I was like, you know what? F that. Tomorrow night's the drawing. It's true. I also I'm I'm wearing my Venom Life Gear baseball hat with my Venom Life Gear hat hook, and ten percent of all proceeds to Venom Life Gear go directly to the ASF. And if you go onto Venom Life Gear and use the promo code THP for the Herpetoculture Podcast, you will get an additional. You will get a ten percent off. So if you go buy a shirt and you use THP, you get ten percent off. But at the same time, once they take your money, they take another 10% of that and donate it to ASF to help people and snakes get along in harmony and educate people in faraway lands about snake bite and how the witch doctor is not going to save their leg from being cut off and that they should go to a hospital. And putting anti-venin that's lifealized in medical stations all across the world that don't necessarily have warning water, let alone electricity. Your 
Andy Middleton says he's going to get some travel series hooks when they're back in stock. I personally own the travel series hook. I think it's phenomenal. In fact, that is the one snake hook I probably use the most in my room. Um, Steven, I, I gave it. you slot number one. Nice. Steve Poole, slot number one. That travel series hook is just long enough to be safe, but also just short enough that you might get into some precarious situations, but who cares? Cause it fits in your, in your luggage. Let's be real. Um, that, uh, that snake hook was actually designed specifically for a team of biologists from the university of central Florida to do field surveys in South America. And they needed something that was of a particular size because when they went down there, they're using small airplanes, small aircraft, and they're traveling in boats. So weight is a factor, size is a factor. So they needed something that, you know, they could push a fertile ants away, but at the same time, pick up an eyelash viper and bring it closer to them. Yes, Johnny, it's on PayPal. Snakes and stogies at gmail.com. I also have an item that I bought personally with my very own money that I have been waiting and, and to, to auction this item off. Excuse me. And um, I've been waiting to auction this item off and I want, I want the money for this to go to the ASF as well, because we support them immensely because not only doing a great job, but they're very transparent in what they do. Um, the money that is raised and given to them goes a very long way. I think, you know, uh, Jordan Benjamin said that like 60 bucks gets them, you know, five people's meals for a week and like two tanks of gas, something to that extent. I mean, I could be mistaken on that, but it's very, they're very transparent what they do. And you're not just donating money to quote unquote donate money. You're not donating money and you have no idea where it goes. They're constantly showing the work they're doing in the field, the education, they, they go to multiple seminars a year to educate people in the Western world. And they're just, it's just a great team of individuals. And it's an awesome, awesome foundation for lack of a better word. So I'll give a hint as to what it might be, but I don't want to say what it is or show what it is until after we do this drawing. So I'll just give you guys a little hint. Oh, <clears throat> forgive me for clearing my throat so much. All right. So what are we, we fill all the slots? Not yet. What two left? Hold on. Three. 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 Slot eight, slot twenty-four, slot twenty-six. Come on, Unless, guys. Let me see. All right. <clears throat> Sorry, Eli. We're we're over three hundred bucks now. Excellent. Excellent. Awesome. How many? Still three? Yes. <laughs> Do it again. He missed. <laughs> Here, I'll give you. I'll give you the side of the box this time. 
all right, if two more people take the take two more spots, I'll pay for the last one and not take the price if I win. It'll be to the next ball. You can buy more than one slot too. You can do it for yeah. three because we have three prizes. Yeah, what's the value of the prizes as a whole? Ooh, um, like two hundred and seventy total. That's yeah, not so like even, so. We used I, I used my discount at work, so we got it for considerably cheaper, so we could get more money to ASF. Sure. Um, but yeah, like retail value. I mean, we're looking at. 300 bucks worth of stuff i believe awesome so for Actually, 20 or 40 bucks is, elijah is maxed on his on his slots oh good okay make sure there's nothing i missed yep yes he is he did he did bill's maxed on slots too mm-hmm. and we still got three Yep. All right. Um, where's the PayPal going again? Snakes and Stogies at gmail.com. I'm in the time it takes me to send yes, my you 20 can get, bucks. You can get multiple. You can get up to three, Johnny. Because we have three different prizes, which I'll go ahead and. All right. Hold on a second. Let's. Oh man, PayPal. I feel like all... Santa. All right, snakes and and it's is it, and, is it A and D, not ampersand A and D. Yeah. Snakes and stogies. Can't find the right person. Search. Why is it not coming? Snakes. Spelled snakes right, right? And yeah, it's not coming up. Interesting. Johnny said he'd do two more, so that would leave us one. Well, if I figure out how to work PayPal, then that'll be it, and I'll, I'll take I'll take the last one. Uh, let's do this. Money, pay. This stupid new app. Look at this. Can't find the right person. All right, we know what? Snakes, snakes and stogies at gmail.com. Ah, snakes and stogies at gmail.com. Right, I got the two other slots for Johnny. Here it is. 20 bucks, right? Yes. There it is, folks. Hold on. 20 bucks. Next, friends and family. Yes, that's good. Boom. There it is. That's all of them, right? That is all of them. Done. Spin those balls, sir. Time out. I got to. We'll do for those of you listening in the car after the fact, our sincerest apologies. 
all this is going to do right. is prep you for the next amazing raffle for charity with humans and snakes working together to better wait, humanity and snake kind. I have to go a certain way with this, otherwise it starts spitting them out. Alright, we're gonna make this real easy. I'm gonna shake it up and then I'll roll it because so y'all can hear it. Daddy needs a new pair of shoes. Alright. Daddy needs some new bitis parviocula. This was the best Dollar Tree buy of all time. So, first prize is we'll go ahead and start with the sort of the granddaddy. Um, you can see these right here, you know. Um, Psychar case. This is a 10 count Psychar case. Inside is a warped Chinchaye, a Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust Mike Rita. Liga Bravada number nine Toro, Liga Bravada T fifty two Toro, and then a Placencia Alma Fuerte Salomon. Alma Fuerte. And then there is a, a there is a big Beveda pack in the bottom of this. And so the way I have it is, if you already have a travel case and you do not need another one, you can tell me that you would rather have more cigars, and I will trade in this for more sticks. So. I know, like me, I have a bunch of travel cases already, so I'm, I know there's a couple of other guys that have cases, so I figured that way you're not sitting on a ton of these things. Sure. Um, so we'll go ahead and spin it a few more times. Are we ready? We're ready. This is like the, the wizard hat thing in Harry Potter. Gryffindor. It has spoken. Let me see. Show it to the camera, my friend. You won't be able to read it. Six, which is Dan Colgan. Again. Excellent. Oh. All right. So congratulations, Dan, because you can't win twice. Oh, really? Yeah, that's why we were doing three slots. Oh, 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 I get what you're saying. Okay. So I'm sure Dan will let me know what he wants as far as that goes. He actually just got an order from me in the mail today. So <laughs> it's kind of kind of funny. Uh, so next is another sidecar case. This is a five count. This one has kind of a little Roma pack. So a Neanderthal LH, which is what Phil is smoking at the moment. This glare is horrible. A Baca Toro, a Neanderthal HN, which is my personal favorite. Uh, and then Roma Craft Aquitaine Toro. And then there's also a Boveda pack in the bottom of this. So Awesome. Let's go. Let's go, Brandon. I don't know how I'm supposed to spin this thing. 
It has a ball. Number 24. 24. That is Johnny Barrett. Hey. Hey. Congratulations, Johnny. Very good. Third this round. Great. This is great. This is a Romeo and Juliet, uh, 1875 Nicaragua set of five. And then there's an ashtray in here. I have one of these ashtrays. Pardon this one. It's gross and dirty. Uh, it's a actually, nice ashtray. It's, it's pretty nice. I'm not going to lie. It's yeah. a nice, thick, thick, hard plastic. Um, and these cigars are actually really good. I liked them very much. Um, and these look like the cellophane in these looks like it's ambering up real nice too. So these, we've been sitting on these a while. I think we got them either the be towards the beginning of the year or last year. And uh, I don't know. We had so many of them. I like them. Like I said, it's basically, they retail for like 50 bucks. So it's like you get the ashtray for free more or less. So awesome. Let's see. And I don't care what people say. You can never have too many ashtrays. Uh, this is 15. 15 is Bill Bradley. Hey. Hey. I wish this nice. camera would focus so I could show you these. You can see. You can tell that's a 15. So. All right. There we have it. Congratulations, gentlemen. Awesome possum. Let's see what the final tally is for ASF. <laughs> and you got mine, right? Yes. Good. Excellent. $369. Wow. That's amazing. That's fantastic, gentlemen. Gentlemen, ladies, everyone, thank you, everyone, for helping. Thank you, everyone, for participating. It's half the fun. And uh, definitely go and check out the ASF's, ASF's website. They are partnered up with a company called Bonfire. That is a non-for-profit organization that makes apparel, <clears throat> excuse me, apparel and souvenirs for non-for-profit organizations. So when you go on to the ASF store and you buy the beautiful shirt that Justin's wearing right now, all of that money goes to ASF because Bonfire itself is the facilitator of the non-for-profit. So should it's, it's, we do a fourth one and buy someone a shirt? Uh, if you want to, I'm in. All right, let's, let's do it. Let's, let's do it. So if you win, we'll give you a, like you tell us what size shirt you wear uh, and we will buy one and have it shipped to you. How about that? Awesome. You basically pick out what you want and let us know. Lost a ball on the floor. Well, that's the one, that's the one you should get. No, like it fell out of the side where you put them. Uh, 
let's see. I have a number 25. Elijah! Hey! Look at that. Congrats. So, we'll figure that out either tonight or tomorrow. Um, get your shirt size and stuff, and we'll go from there. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and send... all but however much we need for the shirt custom amount how much did your shirt cost after shipping and stuff do you remember me yeah um i honestly can't remember it was like last year uh it might it was it was right around 20 something okay Um, I'm going to go ahead and send, I'll put, I'll do 340, let's do 340 just in case it ends up being more. There's a comment from the snakes and stogies. Dang. Awesome. And see, this is why we do these things, guys and gals, because it's fun and we're doing a good thing. We're bringing snake people together and we get to smoke some cigars and know that people's lives are being saved and research is being done. And it just it's awesome. That's just another just another attribute of our amazing community and our amazing hobby and our our, our amazing passion that we have for our community and our hobby. And uh, Justin and I can't thank you guys and gals enough for this. You know, it really means a lot. So, shall I show off my uh, my donation? Uh, yes. So, <clears throat> for those of you who do smoke cigars, um, and for those of you who don't, we're going to have more raffles. We're going to have some more snake uh, based raffles. Um, I have a pink handled Venom Life Gear uh, 30-inch standard snake hook that we'll be raffling off in the near future. Uh, we'll also possibly have some live specimens, in theory, to ra uh, raffle off, uh, all going to charity, of course. Um, in the interim, I have something that I, I bought with my own money to do this, and I'm waiting for the right time to do it, and I feel like everyone is on the same page now. Um, so for those of you who are unfamiliar, Benchmade is a American made company that makes handcrafted cutlery and pocket knives and uh, utility tools and all kinds of stuff. Uh, they're all made in the United States with American, you know, manufacturing American materials. Um, and then once a year they do limited edition products. Uh, it may be a clear knife handle, or it may be a special knife 
for hunting that, you know, is a skinning knife of some sorts, or maybe a multi-tool or a Swiss army knife or something. Well, Benchmade also has a line of cigar cutters. So this is, Oh, the, did you get one of those? This is the Ala Fume model 381. Now they discontinued this model because they only do it for one year. So if you can manage to find this, uh, the MSRP for this is, I looked it up. So the MSRP, when this was available to the general public, it was $160. Um, and I'm trying to take it out of its little soft baggie so it doesn't get damaged. Um, now you have to find them. Um, I've seen them as low as 100 bucks, but now that it's discontinued, I imagine it would be in well excess of two maybe even 300 bucks because there are people that collect these for what they are and not to actually use them um, but this is the alafume cigar cutter from benchmade uh, it actually has a driver bit as well as a, a driver flathead for a screwdriver you can also use this oh that's cool this hole as a lanyard loop if you want to put it on a piece of paracord and throw it in your knapsack your cigar bag but the design of this also has a bottle opener on this side. So you can actually pop your bottle. Uh, the pocket clip is actually made of stainless steel and it uses a stainless steel ball bearing so that it doesn't fray on your pants pocket or your suit pocket. Uh, it also can be clipped inside of a knapsack or a backpack, whatever. And this stainless steel is actually quite pliable. Um, you'll also notice that the outside of it is this lovely red and green and earth tone you know kind of swirly appearance this is actually g10 micarta this is a form of resin that is uh, heat treated and super duper dense and durable but the coolest thing about this is it's a circular cutter uh i don't remember the ring gauge i want to say it's like a 64 but it's flat backed because of the clip there's no pass through so you have a perfect cap cut every time and the piece de resistance of the à la fume is that it is a sheep's foot. <laughs> it is incredibly sharp, so be very, very careful. It has this cutout right here to alleviate any kind of stress that maybe get put in. There is no lock on it, so it, it will close on your finger. Be careful. But yeah, you have a perfectly straight 90-degree sheep's foot made of uh, let me see the steel construction. This is S30V steel. And upon closing, it does a perfect, try and get this in the camera right, a perfect cut. So we're going to have this in our next raffle. It actually comes with spare screws uh, in case your clip, pocket uh, clip screws get loose. It comes in this nice little silk baggie in an original Benchmade box. It is unused. And that will be our next raffle. So for those of you who are knife collectors or, you know, Benchmade fanatics, or you just want a really cool cutter, that'll be up next on our next raffle. Okay. So I did the math. And with this, we have to date raised $1,420.91. Wow. For awesome. the one, two, three, four, five, six raffles we've done. That's total. fantastic. Awesome. And I have 
I know I have Colgan's address. Johnny, I should have yours unless it's changed. Um, let me see. I just got another 20 from somebody. I'll have to message them. Um, so that's awesome. I like it. I know uh, I need to text Brent and let him know because I know he'll be pretty pumped about that. Absolutely. Oh, let me fix my camera. <clears throat> Maybe we'll finally get Jordan Benjamin on the show. Yeah. <laughs> so he's a very, very busy man. So uh, it'll be an honor. Thank you all for participating. Yes. Um, I should have everyone's addresses, like I said, so I will get these out within the next uh, couple days. And, uh, yeah. So. Hell yeah, folks. Hell yeah. Lisa, we just finished them. Do you want me to send that 20 back? I will, if you need me to. Driving and PayPaling. I've tried to do that before. It is not easy. One time I did that to a friend, like a, like a legit friend that I know in the real world. It wasn't buying something. And I missed a decimal point or a period in the name. <laughs> and apparently there are lots of bad guys out there that have like name generators. And it went to a conglomerate mm -hmm. in Germany. And I had to do a whole PayPal dispute and everything. And I got my money back because I think it was within like four hours of, of transaction or something. But yeah, some jerk in Germany was going to run off with my, you know, 100 bucks or whatever it was. So that worked out for the better, though. So now that we've gotten the business end out of it. That's right. I've been trying to think all day of what we can call these three genera you know they have like you know the the deadly dozen and they have the cat pack you know, the cat pack the cat pack <laughs> that's brilliant did just, that just just came to did, me did that really just come to you yeah no i Be haven't honest. put any thought into that at all because i've the wondered the same thing like pack. what do you call these other than i dude it's been, racking, or, it's been racking my brain all day Dipsadids, the cat pack. Oh my Do god! Do they count as brilliant. dipsadids, or is that just New World? No, no, that's that's they're, they're, they're I'm pretty sure they are dipsadids. Okay. Yeah, but they do not. They are not the crawl daddy when you need them. But to the best of my knowledge, I don't think any of them are colubroids. I think they are colubrids. The same way that uh, yeah, Teletornis and Dysfolidus is still colubrid. So. Yeah. I will say this, True. though. Uh, I've been having a really hard time with the new uh, Chrome update and Google update and all that. Trying to get, <laughs> Henry says, how about the pussycats? <laughs> uh, trying to get some scientific papers and even like looking at Wikipedia, like the Telescopus and the uh, Toxicodryas Wikipedia pages, it won't let me look at it because it says it's viruses and some crap which is stupid because i'm on those hmm. I'm on wikipedia all the time on my phone so i have a couple things that i pulled up i broke out dr fry's book even though it's completely unreadable um and uh yeah so how do you want to kick this shindig so first of all i have to shout out uh tim van eck 
who was the one who originally commented a week ago saying he'd love it if we guys went a little more in depth on telescopus. Uh, he said they are a genre that I've been reading about for a year now and continually struggle to find information on. Um, but I also just love to hear the desert boy get some attention. So I was like, if we're going to talk about that, and we were just talking about the phylogenic tree and how yeah. telescopus, toxicodryas, all that stuff, um, isn't that they're all sort of related in some yeah. capacity. So I figured we'll just go ahead and talk about all of them a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I wasn't sure what you prepared, so I, I didn't prepare anything. I meant to grab that paper and pull it up and stuff, but I wasn't sure if you had already or not. So, no, I have, um, I have one paper that I don't understand. I won't let me, oh, I know why I have to request from the author mm. the full paper because it was published April of 2021, but it's got the coolest name of any paper. It's called night stalkers from above. A monograph of Toxicodryas tree snakes with descriptions of two new cryptic species from Central Africa. How cool is that name? Night Stalkers from Above. Awesome. So it's pretty cool I'll when they get creative and, like that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll try and dive into that in a minute. And then I also have a paper um, on, I'm going to butcher this name. It's Telescopus. Ren Renopoma, Renopoma from Afghanistan and Pakistan. And Rhinopoma? Is it Rhinopoma? I'm, I'm assuming so. Okay. So Rhinopoma, which is way, e more, way easier to say than what I was trying to do, but it basically shares the same uh, low valley, high altitude desert environment as uh, Pataeus mucosa and Naja oxiana. And it's basically that that crazy high altitude mountainous landscape, rocky terrain between Pakistan and Afghanistan. So I had pulled up that full paper with some really cool pictures so we can share that. But how did you want to uh, dive in? You want to start with Boyka? I want to start Telescopus since that was sort of the requested. Okay. We'll go with there. I'm going to see if so I can pull up the, the paper. I thought I have it somewhere. The... um. The Wikipedia for Telescopus, Telescopus, is actually um, pretty vague, but it breaks down the, see, damn it, it won't let me open this on this computer. Um, it, it breaks down the different species and then some of the subspecies. And I was actually, uh, Hendog was kind enough to send me a paper earlier on toxicity of certain telescopus and i tried to find some of my hard literature on toxicology or toxinology of anything telescopus and there's really nothing out there except for let me oh, you, let me you get won't die that so let me get that one book the venomous bites from non-venomous snakes real quick because there may have been something in that yeah. about it let me grab it sure absolutely um i'm gonna pull up the telescopus and forgive us we we are prepared in our minds and then we realize oh yeah we have to show it on screen too so that kind of puts a hindrance on it um so telescopus is a group of old world cat snakes essentially a arboreal and semi-arboreal species of colubrid 
that is rear fanged venomous uh, that hails from sub-Saharan Africa all the way up the East Coast around the Sahara Desert and then branches up into the Near East and up into the Middle East and Central Asia. Um, as of right now, there is... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen species that are currently described. Um, and depending on the person you speak with, I believe six of them are considered subspecies. However, they're so uh, visually different, as well as uh, DNA and scale count and all that jazz, that they, they basically give them their own species ship. Um, there aren't many of them in the pet trade. There used to be more. Um, most of them were the sub-Saharan African species, which the two main ones is Beetsy. So telescope is Beetsy, which is uh, Beet's tiger snake or the, the Namib tiger snake. It gets its name because of its bright yellow or orange coloration with black tiger stripes. And the other one is uh, Telescopus semi-annulatus and semi-annulatus semi-annulatus, a subspecies. Those are going to be your southeastern uh, tiger snakes, and they branch up from southeastern, like KwaZulu-Natal, all the way up through Mozambique, and some of them even branch up into East Africa, into uh, tropical Ethiopia, southern Kenya, uh, into Tanzania. Um, I don't know if there are any barrier island localities, but that is something I look, I want to look into because I kind of have a thing for barrier island snakes. Um, let me get you some pictures because... I could talk about it till I'm blue in the face, but if you guys can't see it, what's the point? Telescopus semi-annulatus. And this is this is the snake that most, when people speak of telescopus, this is what most, at least Westerners, think of. Um, and you'll obviously see why it's called the tiger snake. So this is semi-annulatus. Um, they are highly arboreal, but most people don't consider them an arboreal snake. From what I've observed in my own keeping, as well as people I've talked to and photos that I've you know, diligently scoured the internet for, um, people find them hunting in bushveld and lowland uh, thorn patches and stuff like that. But if they're not doing that, they're underneath something underneath a rotten log or a patch of spear point grass a lot of the spear point grass that's in uh, sub-saharan africa it'll mat itself down or fall over and they'll use that kind of like a micro canopy climate um, the semi-annulatus is more commonly found in urban environments than the beetsy uh you just find here these are these are some pretty good traditional looking ones you'll notice the bands and saddles are a little more broad some of them fade a little bit towards the pectoral scales uh, and then just like many of the other cat snakes they have that, that crazy cat eye shaped pupil uh, and they have a very very long tongue and they will flatten their head out you can see in this one he's kind of assuming a defensive posture uh, but a lot of people will handle them um, it's something that I think comes down to the individual animal uh, because let's be real. If it's posing a defensive posture, I'm probably not going to pick it up. Um, people do get envenomated by them and it doesn't have the best reaction, but it's also not necessarily life threatening. And I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute more when Justin finds what he finds. Um, let me find you 
the beats the eye. Fine. There's nothing in the book the about there's some there's some boyga talk in that book, but there's not telescopus. So. Okay. So here's the beatsy, if you guys can see. Very, very similar. However, you will notice that the stripes of the, the tiger stripes are more blotched. Uh, you'll notice there's more tipping in the scalation. You'll also notice most of them have a discolored head. This particular one has that bright orange head. You'll notice this one's a slightly different contrast to the main bit of the body. Um, when these things are on the move, they very much resemble our Pityophis. They have this, uh, these saddles kind of leapfrog each other in the grass and through the sand and through the thicket. Uh, so it, it almost gives the appearance of the snake just keeps going and going and going. You know what I mean? Um, but this is more of the Namib and the northeastern sections of Sudwest Africa. Uh, sandy soil, rocky terrain. This one's eating its own skin. No idea what's going on there. But just, just an awesome, awesome animal. Um, another one that is fairly frequently seen in the hobby is Telescopus Dahara. And Dahara has a couple different subspecies. And that's what you have, right? So I have uh, a, what is now a different species. It was reclassified um, as Telescopus obtusus. So let me find a good picture of Dahara. These pictures are kind of crappy. Here we go. All right. So let's share this screen. So, so Telescopus Dahara uh, is essentially your, I mean, I don't even know what, what the common name would be now. Uh, basically, they call it the desert cat snake or Arabian cat snake. Uh, they are found from the Sinai Desert east up around into Israel, Jordan, southern Lebanon, over into uh, Saudi Arabia, and even in, up into parts of Iran. Um, they reach out farther, too, in other areas, but very little is known about the geography of it because you got to go to these places to find it. You know what I mean? Um, but what's cool about them is they come in a wide assortment of patterning. Uh, the typical pattern is kind of this braided look, uh, tans, taupes, drab colors, uh, some some hints of red and rust, uh, and predominantly lizard eaters, but they'll eat almost anything. So I actually have my, my pair of baby obtusus. The male has already eaten a uh, live pinky for me. The female has not. So I might have to try something a little different. Um, and that's just, I literally just left it in there overnight and it ate it. So uh, some other people that I know that got Dahara's uh, will do assist feeding where they basically hold the snake. They pin the snake, they put the prey item in the snake's mouth and then let go. And the snake eats it on their own. So good for them. If it works, it works. I don't really care to do that because it puts a lot of stress in the animal, but that's more of a last resort kind of thing for me. But what I have, the obtusus, is slightly different. And so, and the big difference that was brought to my attention, actually Nipper is the one who told me about it, is you'll notice on the obtusus, you see this dark line here that goes through the, through the eye? Mm -hmm. So that dark line is the is a proven physical attribute to differentiate the species. 
and the obtusis strictly hails from the Nile River Valley. So basically from the Nile River Delta, straight down through Cairo, through Luxor, all the way into southern Egypt, and it basically hugs the Nile River. Um, almost all of these other snakes on the screen are not. These are phallix, I believe, uh, which is yep. your Mediterranean cat snake. Um, and there is a black head. Look at this, of course. Can't get away from the guy. <laughs> Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. All right. So yeah, so um, let me find that uh, that black. Actually, this is the one from Morocco, I think. So they're calling that obtusis, but that, yeah. So obtusis is not found in Morocco. Obtusis is strictly found in the Nile River Valley. This one is probably a, oof, probably a form of uh, phallax, Mediterranean. Um, but it doesn't have the patterning. No, it can't be that because that's too far south and west. Regardless, there's a lot of species and very, very little known about them in the North Africa, Middle Eastern range because they are so obscure. And you got to kind of go out and find them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I did find this here. So this is the one from the rhinopoma, excuse me. And this one is in Afghanistan and northwestern Pakistan. All right. And I believe Tim said he was in the Netherlands. Um, and I don't know about over there, but over here, Telescopus is not a heavily kept genus at all. No, definitely not. Um, so usually when you see, when we see Mojave over on this side of the pond, it's usually Dahara or, um, you know, like Phil has the obtusis. Uh, so, so, and some of you usually don't is, see is much pretty, that. Yeah, we used to get Semiannulata uh, from both uh, southern Mozambique and then um, some places that claimed it was Tanzania, but who the hell knows. And those animals came in, and I regret not keeping them. You know, I was talking to, to Dr. Wyman today about, you know, animals that we wish we'd hung on to back in the day, and we didn't. You know, and that is definitively a species I wish I hung on to. You know, because I had I had captive bred babies that were eating and like like a bonehead, I, I sold stuff. So um, this is, excuse me, Telescopus rhinopoma out of Afghanistan. I just I can't get enough of a look at this animal. And this is a deep, deep, arid, yeah. desert, rocky moonscape of an animal. And it just is phenomenal. I feel bad for these pictures. I don't know if you guys can notice, but something happened to this animal, whether it got in a fight or maybe the the surveyors pulled it from the rock escarpment or something. You can see it has some skin damage here, some skin damage here. But if there's one thing I know about desert snakes, man, they are tanks. So um, it actually speaks in this article about the elevation. And the main part of this article was the fact that they're so high up and they're definitely not the highest elevation of snake. I mean, there's been king cobras found in, in Tibet that, I mean, Henry can tell you better than I can, that are, I think, 9,000 foot of elevation. 
I mean, here we're looking at 1,500 meters, so you're roughly around 4,000 foot of elevation ballpark, which is still really high for a, a snake. You know what I mean? Um, and this kind of gives you an idea of where the specimens and survey were. So the problem is you have this whole region is war-torn. This whole region is war-torn. And you got to kind of know people to go up through here. So it makes it, uh, it can make it difficult and treacherous. But highest elevation record of rare desert cat snake telescopus rhinopoma out of Pakistan. And Henry says that Dahara has the largest venom glands of any of the telescopus. So that's very interesting. Yeah, so we don't see many over here. Um, I'm assuming a lot of that is probably because most of the countries that they're native to aren't exporting, be it political or CITES. Um, you can probably chime in on that better than I can, but I think there's also yeah. not a ma there's not a very big demand for them. Like we have Lycodon and some of mm -hmm. that other stuff that kind of fits that bill for us. That's native, you know, out west. Um, right. Man, I mean, sort of in that same vein, like the night snakes. The more I mm -hmm. see those, dude, they're so they're, that was like finding those was so cool and like. It would be really so cool. awesome to set up a similar setup like how I have the Ackies, but have yeah. like night snakes in it and feed them lizards and it would it would just be really cool. And I was actually talking to I think uh either I think it's Connor Wardle or Dustin Gron are keeping some and they or have kept some and I think it was Connor actually. And he was saying that there's actually some populations that are known to take mice periodically, like not as their full blown diet, but they will eat them. Really? Um, yeah, and he's actually he's supposed to be on the show this week, Connor Wardle. So I'm really excited about that because cool. Connor's doing a lot of really cool stuff. He's a Baird's guy too, so I mean it's a no brainer. Awesome. And uh, yeah, night snakes would be fun. They're so small. Like that's I don't know what it is about me. Like I'm a big man. I like small snakes. I don't I don't know what it is. Like I've always liked smaller dwarf stuff, like dwarf monitors, Ranatomea, uh, you know the tiny tiny thumbnail darts. Um, I don't know. I just, I like small. You like what you Maybe like. It makes, me feel, it makes me feel like a giant. Maybe that's why. <laughs> uh, another telescopus that is rarely seen, but honestly it should be, is um, uh, Negroceps, which is your black cat snake or black striped cat snake. And that is here. This is going to be uh, Jordan into central uh, Iraq and up into Iran. Um, there are parts in southeastern Turkey where they get a very unique patterning. But I just think this is awesome because it's basically almost an exanthic version of the South African stuff. I mean, look at this yeah. one, the stripe. How cool is That's that? Wild. That's from Marco Shea's website. Look at that. Bitch, it, it, it's, it's, I feel like it's just, we talk about liar snakes being, you know, desert boiga, but this is legit desert boiga, you know? So it's like a fancy California king snake. <laughs> right. 
So, well, that's my my micro spiel on telescopus. I'm still learning myself. I am not an expert by any means, but share the knowledge when we get it. So, let me see if I can pull up this Boyga paper. Okay. And I'll screen share that, and we can talk about that a little bit. Nice. I sent you the link to it, but it's probably easier for me to do it and show it. Oh, here, let me see what happened to that link. It's so frustrating that they'll let you read the paper, but you can't download the PDF. Well, I uh, just did. So I'll share it. Cool? Yeah. All right. All right. Let me do this. Share screen. Chrome tab. All right. Phylogenetic relationships and biogeographical range evolution in cat-eyed snakes. Boiga. So here we go. 35 primarily arboreal us, species. What's that? I'm just going to make us disappear so we can see this better. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, I guess, should I just read the abstract? Uh, I mean, you can if you want to. I was mostly yeah, just going to show like the actual phylogenetic tree because there's two of them that okay. I think are, are very much relevant to what we're talking about. And I'm going to have them on my phone here too so I can be looking at them. And... You just tell me when you want me to stop. <clears throat> Actually, that map is awesome. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's fantastic. That covers everything. Uh, Sundaland. All right. Can I fit them all? Holy crap, I can't fit them all. Well, that How's that right there? Is that too much? No? Go a little more? Yeah, go up to the top. All right, going to the top? Yeah. How's that? And let me pull up that same, same thing. So... You can see on the left, that's sort of the branches. And as we go down, we get to Boiga. And you, I don't know if you can, we can't really zoom in on that, can we? Um, but what's interesting is, so you have the uh, telescopus and then uh Dasepeltis and the Toxicodryas. So I originally thought the Telescopus was closer to the to the group than it is. Um, as you I mean, can it's, look it's at one that branch and, off, right? And you can you see know? that Boiga are are branched off from that Toxicodryas. If I'm reading this correctly. Um, but what I liked about this paper is it sort of breaks them down into groups. Um, so if you scroll down some. And to the right a little bit, where it has the gray boxes. Yep. So it, it irregularis, which is the brown tree snakes, are now two different groups. There's the flavicens and then irregularis. Uh, flavicens is basically, if I'm recalling correctly, is the there's like a bubble that surrounds Australia and separates. Flavicens from Irregularis. Uh, irregularis basically being what's inside that bubble, which is going to be like your Australian and PNG stuff. 
and then outside of that is Flavicens, which is the the Sumatran uh, or Sulawesi stuff, rather, that you're seeing there on that screw. But then there's a Cynodon group, which includes uh, looks like Forstenai, uh, Guangziensis, Siamensis, Cynodon, obviously. Um, there's the Drapezii group, which is Benculuensis, which is still kind of up for debate as far as if that's an actual species or something. Some people seem to question it um, as far as it being different from Drapezii. Uh, okay. There's Schultzi, Angulata, and that's sort of the the Dendrophila group, which we all know is is big. I mean, that's got Melanota, that's right. got Divergens, that's got your Gemacincta, your Dendrophila, Dendrophila, um, Cyania. So those are all kind of together. Uh, I can't tell if Nigriceps is in that group or not. It doesn't look like it. No. You'd imagine it'd be... Oh, no. So, yeah. Uh, no, Nigriceps is going to be part of part of the no not part of the synodon it's kind of hard yeah it's kind of hard to tell yeah it's kind of i would i would think those would be those would be closer to the dendrophila group than anything else yeah you'd imagine but it also you look at the patterning you look at the size it may very well be its own thing Mm -hmm. you know then i also find it interesting because if you look at the multimaculata there's four different clades so there's cambodia vietnam myanmar uh, which there is a lot of variation in those because their range is huge. Right. Um, but Toxicodryas is right above Boiga, and that's to, like, th- I think they were originally in the, the Boiga group, but are, as of a handful of years ago, are not. They're now their own thing. Um, but basically, you can consider those like the African Boiga, more or less. Right. That's, that's pretty much how they're related. Um, and there's only a hand, there's not that many species in that genus. I, believe. I think it's three or four now. Yeah. So let's see what. Let's see what the the Wikipedia machine has to say. Um, yeah, it's I'm, very. I find it very interesting. Google Chrome will let me open this research gate paper, but it won't let me open Wikipedia. <laughs> Go figure. So there are currently four species that are recognized in Toxicodryas. So Toxicodryas adamantius, um, Blandingi, uh, Pulverulenta, and Vexator. And basically, we only see two of those in the hobby, which is the Blandingi and the, the Pulverulenta. I've also uh, I've seen more of those in the last like year yeah. or two than I've ever seen. And I think that's pretty cool because they're, they're neat little snakes. Um, oh, yeah. Don't see Blandingi too often. Somebody recently bred the... Um... Uh, who was it? Yeah, somebody. No, no, not not the blanding. And and that's the problem is I think people need to get into the blanding because there is no captive bred animals. And if if someone knows of them, please speak up, let me know. But there's just so many imported that it kind of gets pushed to the side. You know, I feel like that's a species that would do really well if you're into keeping this type of animal. Uh, it would do very well to have captive bred animals because the imports are becoming few and far between. So. I think it's also interesting that they have the egg eaters not far off in that, that tree either. 
Yeah. Which is, which is, when you think of it in this tree, it makes sense. But when you look at it, you're like, that's totally different. You know? Mm -hmm. Now, forgive me, but how many of these Boiga are Indo? Is it strictly from uh, multimaculata and down? Basically branching from, you know, peninsula, Malay Peninsula and, and, and east? So all of these are more. Uh, so looking at it, yeah. Like if you're looking, if you go down the list, let me go back up to that chart because I'm looking at a different one. Um, yeah, you're looking at basically range-wise for the entire genus. You're looking at going from India towards China, so left to right from India. Um, India has a ton of species that we just don't have in the hobby because it's India. Right. Um, pretty much anything that's in the hobby that's that's being kept on any larger scale is is stuff in the the dendrophila group um and then i mean you do see benculuensis and drapezii brought in regularly as imports those are a little more difficult because those are a little more uh specified as far as food same with jaspidia and crapolina you'll see sometimes um but like Trigonata, Salinensis, um, let's see, what else? Multomaculata, uh, Filipina. So so there's a lot of that stuff that we just don't see because of uh, export laws and those companies or countries just aren't aren't sending stuff out. Right, right. Um, so the, the, the family of or group of boiga is actually pretty big and there's a ton of spe- a very large chunk of those species are, are native to india um but we only really see a handful in the u.s hobby there's there are some species over in europe that are kept more regularly like nipper i think has some multimaculata or some trigonata i think he, i know he has trigonata um okay Let's see. I'm looking at some of these other charts and sort of the, the legends with it to try and have a better grasp of what's going on. Well, while you look at that, I actually There's a have... section here. What you got? Phylogenetic relationships. Most, uh, talk says most recent molecular phylogenetic studies have re- recovered Boiga to be a paraphyletic with respect to the African genre uh, Crotophopeltis, uh, Daisypeltis, Dips, Dipsadoboa, and Telescopus and Toxicodryas. Um, although recovered monophyly for Boiga and recovered this genus as nearly monophyletic. Early studies of samples of small set of oxy for. Mm. A lot of big words. Yeah. I posted this paper in the group, I think, when we talked about it last week or the week before. So Right. Uh so there's there's obviously some sister relationships between species and it talks about that, you know, the, the similarity between Crepolini and Jaspidia. Um says we recover Crepolini to as the sister lineage to all other Boiga and Jaspidia as a sister group to the clade containing Barnes Eye. Um, I don't even know how to pronounce that last one. 
But basically, they're saying Jaspidia is uh, the sister clade to Barnsai, Trigonata, Multimaculata, and some of the other ones. Um, let's see. I should have prepared for this better. I'm sorry. It's okay. I butchered Telescopus. You can butcher Boiga. Boiga. So explaining the brown, like the difference in the browns, basically. Uh, the brown tree snake, Boiga regularis, is infamous for its devastating invasion of Guam, but the taxonomy of the group has been complicated. Recent authors have treated the name Boiga flavicens as a synonym of Boiga irregularis uh, and reported color pattern and scalation differences between flavicens and irregularis. It has the author's... Uh, Deroige, I don't know how to pronounce that, R-O-O-I-J, and De Haas included Sulawesi within the distribution of both these species. Subsequently, uh, Indenbosch treated Flavicens as a synonym for irregularis, included that the color and pattern and scalation characters cannot distinguish these taxa, and later authors have followed Indenbosch's taxonomy. However, our, our phylogenetic results strongly support the presence of two deeply genetically diverged lineages on opposite sides of Weber's line, which Weber's line is that, that sort of that bowl I was talking about. Um, and we treat these geographically and genetically cohesive lineages as distinct species. Uh, Boiga flavicens includes all individuals belonging to the Sulawesi endemic lineage. Uh, and B. irregularis includes all individuals from populations other than Sulawesi recognition of flavicin should not cause confusion for conservation research and management of invasive species in Guam. Uh, and then it goes on to say in Guam, they're derived from one or more uh, source B regulars populations in northern northeastern New Guinea. And then there's another species of boiga here that is a nightmare to pronounce. Uh, Tana Jampiana, which I believe they're talking about that being part of the Dendrophila group. I don't know what I'm talking about or what I'm doing. Whop. Phil uh, ran to go do something real quick. So this paper is really interesting. It's definitely worth reading. I like seeing phylogenic trees and stuff to kind of show you where things came from and where they diverged from. Um, conclusions. Biogeographic studies of taxonomic groups such as Boiga, which span continental and island archipelago systems, provide an opportunity to understand the dynamics of how these distinct geographic systems jointly influence the diversification process. Although species-level phylogenetic relationships and the biogeographic history of this group have been poorly understood, our phylogenetic study greatly expands upon the species-level sampling within Boiga and supports the hypothesis that Boiga are, is monophyletic. Taxonomic revisions of some of the widespread species previously distinguished from the, on the basis of color pattern uh, differences and Indochinese origin of the genus. Additionally, we present strong statistical evidence of reverse colonization of Southeast Asia from the Philippines and of Australia from Wallacea by multiple lineages within Boiga, although our biogeographic results are consistent with earlier studies that found colonization of continents from island archipelagos appear to be rare relative to colonization of islands by continental fauna. 
intense. And this this was authored by Jeffrey Weinel, which we should see if we can maybe get him on at some point. I think he's on Facebook. Yeah. I was just too scared to, to friend him. Uh, Anthony Let's Barley, Cameron Seiler, and Nikolai Orlov. And this just came out uh, August of last year. So Nice. Nice. Yeah, I was actually, when I started doing a little digging for the show, I was a bit enamored at how many recent papers on the uh, the cat pack there were, you know, 2019, 2020, 2021, you know, it's good, mm -hmm. good stuff out there right now. So I actually, um, I, I went digging through some of my hard text, trying to find something on not necessarily clinical effects, but something to, to talk about how these, the, how the cat pack has very, very potent venom, despite its delivery system and or the lack of envenomations. Um, I feel like so many people in our community, in our hobby, they poo-poo these animals. And whether it's a, a giant melanota or it's a, you know, eight inch long telescopus and yep. it takes a really bad Facebook photo to make people go, wow, holy crap. You know, just talking about that one guy that got his arm jacked or up for now. some people to completely wave it off because they think yeah. it's being over exaggerated. And right. And what I find interesting is somebody just recently uh, one of the guys at underground did some Googling. They got, they got telescopus Tahara and I, I missed, I missed on getting them, but they, uh, they, somebody Googled somewhere saying that the, the toxicity was as potent as a death adder. It was as just as potent as Ankanthophis. And I would basically, I, I, I don't want to say I laughed at it, but in my mind, I laughed at it because that just doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? Um, and, and I think so there's reading. There's the the individual that sort of scoffs at people and toxicity of of rear fang stuff their main complaint is that comparisons like that are made and that i understand that i agree with right. to say that false water cobras are as toxic as you know an atrox or a Kothia or whatever right like that's that's a stupid comparison because yeah i mean you look at Widows, those are just as toxic as cobras, supposedly. But yeah. you're probably the likelihood of you dying from one is pretty slim as long as you're healthy. Right. Um, so that comparison, I don't think is, is. I would agree that I think there's people that use that for sort of the shock value of it and try to make it seem like it's more than it actually is. But these things also deserve respect. And oh, yeah. You definitely need to be paying attention to what you're doing with them. You know, just because it's not going to kill you doesn't mean that bite's going to be fun. Same with tarantulas. You know, yeah. I don't. I'm not going to go out and handle a, any of the ornamentals or any of the African stuff yeah. just because I can. Like, it's going right. to. I'd rather not find out that it's going to suck. I can read reports about other people's mistakes to tell me that I don't need to get bit by it to know that it sucks. Exactly. You know, it, the whole you don't know how you're going to react thing. Same yeah. thing. I mean, that's yeah. why we see people get bit by hog noses and nothing happens. And you see other people get bit by hog noses and it's surprisingly gnarly, you know, especially for a smaller snake. Yeah. Yeah. It's that classic thing of, you know, 10 of my friends got bit and nothing happened. Well, 
you know, I was the 11th and I lost my arm or I needed a kidney transplant or, well, he died. Transfusion. Yeah. Um, So on that same note, I broke out the only book in my arsenal that actually had something specific to say on the actual venom of any of the cat pack was Dr. Fry's giant, giant book. Now, because who else has put as much time into the venoms of the cat pack than him or who, really any other venomous any animal. exactly <laughs> any other venomous animal. And I've said this before, uh, the book is incredibly expensive. And although I have my own personal opinions of Dr. Fry, I commend him for all of his work and all of his knowledge. But I warn everyone who buys this book, it is if you're a layman like myself, it is damn near unreadable. It is a mouthful uh, of sand. It's 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 a Dry. mouthful. Of yeah, it's literally just pack your mouth full of saltine crackers and you know try Don't and count drink to any water. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I did find one excerpt out of the whole book. I found one little bit on Boiga venom, and I doggy eared it with a Chipotle napkin. <laughs> Recycled. Okay, chili's napkin. Yeah, I know, right? And now that I just said that, now I've lost where it was. All right. Um, so what this is referring to is the structural, the structure of Boiga venom and the function of the toxin forms within it. So if I skip through a bunch of scientific things I don't understand, uh so it's referring to cysteine residues in triplicates. So essentially pieces of the venom that are in triplet in, in, in a three-piece set. And it talks the venom of snakes from the non-front fang genus Boiga contains heterodimers of placeotypic type A neurotoxins, which bind to the postsynaptic nicotine acetylchlorine receptors resulting in flaccid paralysis each monomer in the toxin possesses a different newly evolved cysteine residue which together form the interchange the interchain disufid bridge so basically these postsynaptic nicotine acetylchlorine receptors produce a placid for it wow a flaccid paralysis through neurotoxin so which is interesting because you say that there is a talk of irregularis in these and let's you know and there's several others while you look for that there's several other snakes that come to mind that have a very very similar flaccid paralysis through neurotoxicity Uh, most of the asian cobras that's like their main mo you know yeah and i mean when when it comes to to boy it's pretty well documented that their their venom is typically many 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 more times toxic to lizards than it is to mammals like it's a much more prey specific sort of venom but there are some that are 
that are pretty gnarly, like Irregularis, I think is arguably probably the, the hottest of the of the group, quote unquote, at least that we know of. Hmm. Um actually there's a there's a whole section um on Boiga Irregularis in Fry's book when they're talking about snake repellents and how they tested all these different quote unquote repellents on a handful of snakes. And uh, the main one that everyone kept talking about was uh, mothballs, camphor flakes, and how it does have a somewhat of a reaction against geckos and lizards, but snakes just don't care. Mm-hmm. And basically the whole point of it was, I guess everyone on Guam was told put mothballs everywhere and it'll keep all the boy go away. And it honestly didn't do anything except make the whole place smell like mothballs. <laughs> yeah. I, I so. hate the smell of mothballs. Right. Uh, so this, there's a, actually a whole chapter or section devoted to irregularis in this book, which is uh, venomous bites from non-venomous snakes, a critical analysis of risk and management of colubrid snake bites. Uh, and it talks about irregularis and how, there's actually a like a shift in in venom and how it works from the like a ontogenetic thing. Right. Um, it says the following points are considered: some larger snakes greater than 1.4 meters produce a secretion that exhibits a higher marine toxicity and it has a very low postsynaptic neurotoxin content. All of the concerning bites inflicted on humans, principally four of the five pediatric cases mentioned earlier, were from large snakes, average length of about 1.17 meters. Juvenile slash smaller snakes have a lower marine toxicity and a higher postsynaptic neurotoxin content. Uh, larger prey are actively constricted and bites delivered during prey handling sequestered large volumes of low toxicity secretion into the integument. And to date, the only neurotoxin characterized from the irregular secretion is a distinctive uh, heterodimeric species that is marked prey specifically for avians and saurians with very low toxicity for mammals. So... I thought that was interesting that they're they're hotter when they're smaller, and yeah. then it sort of shifts. Yeah, um, it almost almost as if the adult yield makes up for a need for potency. Uh, Henry actually replied to what I was saying, and he says. Uh, Acetochlorine, it means it blocks the neurons, alpha neurotoxins, is cobras, kings, Aussie stuff, crates, dot, dot, dot. Aussies and crates have beta neurotoxins, which is a whole different thing. That's very, very cool. And that that makes sense. You know, that whole region of the world, it makes sense that they would have similar, you know, neurotoxic traits. It does. So this says has some examples. It says from 1989 to 1994, 206 well-documented cases are recorded as far as bites go. Uh, in this series, 82% of the victims were bitten while sleeping and 50, 52% of the victims were younger than five years old. Uh, this is reminiscent of some of the common features of crate envenoming in India and Sri Lanka. A published series of cases included three pediatric patients, uh, mean age of 2.9 months, uh, that reportedly exhibited ptosis, respiratory failure, and spasticity. Spasticity? Retrospective medical expert review of these presumed neurotoxic effects was equivocal. 
Uh, the majority of patients included in a retrospective review of 446 irregular spites recorded at Guam Memorial Hospital from 1987 to 2004 were asymptomatic or exhibited mild local effects. Severe patients, most commonly children, developed more extensive local effects, including uh, blister formations. These authors identified systemic toxicity, generalized weakness, respiratory difficulty, and ptosis in several victims all younger than one year old. The more severe effects in infants were ascribed to the introduction of larger doses of venom, quote-unquote, due to protracted bites slash chewing inflicted on victims unable to disengage from the snake. Yeah, that makes sense. That definitely makes sense. It sucks that it's always babies, you know? But says one two-week-old male reportedly exhibited respiratory distress, uh, thrombocytosis, and required a three-day neonatal intensive care unit admission. Wow. However, the majority presenting symptoms in the vast majority of victims are puncture wounds slash lacerations, minor bleeding, mild edema, uh, and mild pain. So. Okay. Yeah. Still not something I'm willing to uh, play yeah. around with. And it's it's not like with cyania and melanota and the other stuff that's being kept in the hobby. Yeah. They're not serious venomous species. The likelihood of, of a serious issue coming up from them is pretty slim. But I don't think there's any reason to downplay the potential, you know, even with, with heterodon, yeah. like I said, there's been a handful of heterodon bites posted on Facebook recently than that were surprising given that they were, some of them were even like small, tiny baby hog noses. Yeah. I mean, there's some of the bites that Cox showed me were, were like, wasn't anything to, to giggle at. Sure. Sure. You know, I also think it comes down to, um, our what's the word i'm looking for our blatant disregard for consequences when it is cute mm -hmm. does that make sense so yes i know it has rear fangs yes i know it has the noise gland yes i know it's venomous but it's a baby hog nose and look how cute it's eating my finger it's like no you're going to get messed up. You know, don't let it eat your finger. Like, let's let's be real here. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I'm with you 100% where I don't think it needs to, I don't think a sonodon needs to be treated like it is a boom slang. However, if you have the husbandry technique and, and, and attitude, of a, of as if it was a boom slang, you probably would be better off. Yeah, you know what I mean. Porn snake. Yeah. Can you re can I reach in and pick up my female cyania? Yeah, she'd be fine. But, you know, if there's the likelihood of her tagging me is probably not very high because she's pretty mellow. But I still pull her out with a hook. I still yeah. handle her with a hook. And it's because she's now at a size where if she did bite me, it probably would, I would see something from it. You know, how severe that would be, who knows? I just, like, why find out? Yeah. What's so, what's so difficult about using a hook? Right. 
Like, what's and, is, and, it, is it a is it a cool thing? Is it not manly enough that you, you know if well, you're using a hook, I, are you a bitch? Like, it's just ridiculous. It's like yeah, I, I don't think I don't think that. All right, let's look at someone like like our our friend Matt McDowell. He has numerous boiga. He's doing a great job of keeping them. And he does have some very uh, sketchy photos of him handling them in a defensive posture. Do I think that he is doing something bad in that regard? Probably not. But the problem is, is that the photos are taken out of context. So if you see a picture of him holding a, a juvenile cynodon in his hand and its neck is flared out and its tongue is elongated and it's cocked back in that classic Boiga S. Yeah, you, it looks really bad. It looks really, really bad. But what no one's realizing is that the hand that's holding the snake is probably not in harm's way, even though it's holding the snake. Mm -hmm. It's everything else around. And we're not seeing him or his you know, girlfriend or his friend going like this in the background, making sure that the snake's looking at them while someone takes the, the picture. You know what I mean? So I feel like it's very misleading. And I almost feel like... Uh, I would almost want him to to show, hey, this is how I remove the animal from the enclosure. This is how I get the animal to be calm. This is how we get the animal to take selfies. You know what I mean? And almost show that there is a right and wrong way to do it because when you look at the pictures, it just looks wrong. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, the way I sort of equate it is like, should you point a BB gun at your buddy's face or your own face? It's not wise. Right. Is it going to kill you? No. But you can still shoot your eye out, kid. 100%. 100%. That's a great analogy. <laughs> I love, I, my, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to point my BB gun at someone jokingly, you know, because it's like, yeah, it could hurt them. Like, it just, it. Yeah. And I mean, here, here, I'll show the, you. I'll show the you. The fact that we even have to, like, explain this. Is just goofy to me. It's like it's same with false water cobras and all that other stuff, man. It's like, what's wrong with a hook? Yeah. Here is some pictures that I'm going to show to to basically prove a, a, a somewhat of a point. Um, pull it up. These are my new obtusis. And I'm doing something that is probably probably frowned upon, but I don't think I'm really breaking too many rules. So there you go. So there's me holding a rear fang venomous snake that is essentially non-lethal, but still possesses the ability to envenomate me, and I don't know how my body is going to react. This snake is completely calm. The snake is at ease. Uh, I gently used a snake hook to put that animal on my hand. I didn't grab that animal. I didn't pick that animal up. I used a hook and placed it into my hand. Um, and I literally did it just enough to kind of get a better look at the animal, make sure there was no, you know, issues with scalation or any kind of kinks or anything, make sure locomotion was going well. And then I put them back in the, in, in the tub. Um, here's some more. So this is the female. And I did not, I didn't loop it around my finger. It, it just did it on its own. And here, notice that that black line going mm -hmm. through the eye, indicative of obtusis. Um, 
Here's the mail. Same thing. Oh, I held yeah. my hand flat. One? Patternless, yeah. And I literally just just placed him in my hand. And had he said, you know, I don't want to be here anymore and slithered off my hand, that's fine. He, I'll let him do it because he's, he's only going to go into the tub. He's not getting away from me. And he just kind of sat there. Now, if this animal was four foot long, I probably would not be doing this for several, several months, if not ever, because I have to kind of learn how that animal is going to go, kind of learn how that animal acts. And there may be a time when I could manually manipulate it with my hands, or there's a high probability that I couldn't because it's an adult. It's wild caught. It's extremely defensive. It's not used to being in captivity, whatever you, whatever concept you want to have. And that's the difference. Mm-hmm. That, that's the big difference. So somebody who gets a fresh out of the mangrove swamp, dendrophila and starts playing with it and doing doing this with their head you you're you're an idiot i said it i there was a point with the baby cyania the last clutch i hatched and may i don't know if i mentioned this or not i think i have but when i was assist feeding tails i got hit on i believe it was my thumb like the side of my thumb really uh, not like seriously or anything like that. Yeah, but, you, you, I mean, had, you my, had a nick. Yeah, and yeah. my thumb was a little tingly. I believe it. And that was like that was a smaller snake, and that that even made me go like, hmm, maybe. And it, you got to think, I had it. I hadn't grabbed it, like pinned it yet. And I say pin, I didn't actually pin it, but I hadn't grabbed it by the back of the head yet. Right. But those little guys, man, they were fired up pretty much any time you, you open that tub, they were ready to go. And so, sure. you know, that thing was already sort of prepping to to yeah defend itself. Um, and, and it's, you know, I'm not saying all this to make it seem like it's any anything serious, but the fact that it I did feel something from an animal that size. I mean, they're 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 not big snakes when they come out of the egg. They're long, but they're super thin. They're like spaghetti. Yeah. Um, it was kind of surprising. I wasn't really expecting it. Yeah. So it made me think, like, what would my adult female do? She's she's getting pretty big. I just... Yes, they're not boom slings, like you said, but I don't think that's an excuse to just not use your brain. Correct. They need to be treated with the same respect as the boom slang. They do. You know? Uh, I'll share one more photo that's that's super taboo, and I'm going to explain the photo as I show it. Um, this was taken a couple years ago. Uh, so this is a... Look at that beard. Look at that beard. So I actually took this photo on purpose because I thought it matched the shirt and it looked cool. Um, so this this mangrove was... It is gigantic. Um See how its neck is all mm-hmm. poofed out? Yep. That's not defense posture. That's obesity. That snake is <laughs> is obese. He's got multiple um, chins. He's got he, yes, lots and lots of chins. So like me, <laughs> like both of us, my friend. That's why I have the beard. I covered the chins. <laughs> so this snake was a captive hatched baby that was immediately put onto rodents and hand raised. And I think at this point it was like seven years old or so. And it had been around humans its entire life. It had been manhandled just like it was a California king snake. 
And to the best of my knowledge, it had never even remotely looked like it was going to bite its owner. Um, and the guy brought it into the shop and I'm pretty sure underground wound up buying it off of him and sold it to someone. But, but that snake was incredible because you, you, you had this, I don't want to say a false sense of security, but you, you knew that if something bad was going to go, was going to happen, you might have a chance to kind of see it coming. If that makes any sense, mm-hmm. opposed to like what Henry's saying, a, a wild caught animal or an animal that's unpredictable that just lashes out of nowhere, you know? Um, but this was my first time ever manually manipulating a very large mangrove. This is probably the largest mangrove I've ever seen. I mean, this picture doesn't do it justice. This thing was well over six foot long. Um, and I knew the dangers that could happen. And I took it upon myself to, to act the way I acted. Um, but there's a story to go with it. You see what I'm saying? This is mm-hmm. not just a snake out of the bush. And the problem is, is that I don't share this photo unless I can tell that story. Right. Because if I can't tell that story, it just I just look like it's a jerk. It's just another mangrove. Yeah. It's just another mangrove, right. It's just me flirting with getting bit. And that's not the case. There's a, there's a story to go with this. And a prerequisite, if you will. I vetted this snake, so to speak. And does that mean that I'm impervious to getting bit by it? Hell no. That thing could have turned around and lashed onto my face no problem but i took it upon myself to weigh out the risks and so on and so forth and act act accordingly so that that's my shtick on it is as long as you have the respect and you're aware of what the animal is capable of doing you can act accordingly but i will i'll say i'll never showboat a mangrove i'll never showboat uh toxicodryas and i'll never showboat telescopus the same way I would never showboat, you know, Teletornis or uh, Thrasops or Dysphilidus. Mm-hmm. So I just, I, so I handle when I'm cleaning mine, I take them out and put them in a holding tub or whatever in one of the racks until I get them cleaned up. Like I handle them more or less the same way I handle the Jansen eye. Like I handle the Jansen eye with the hook. Yeah. Because they're fast as shit. Yeah. You got it. I keep my interactions brief and I don't like getting bit. So, of course. Am I super stiff and holding them all the way out when I'm moving them? No. No. I'm, it's just one of those things where it's like I'm using a hook and I'm using my brain. And yeah, my female's calm. Could I handle my female without a hook? Probably. It's just yeah. one of those things where I, 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 everyone has their own sort of level of comfort, I guess. And like, even if it were the case of that bigger melanota, I probably would have still had a hook just because it's like, yeah, it can be the calmest thing in the world, but that's, that's up to you, I guess, with the level well, of trust and how much so, you're willing to sort of instill with the, with the an yeah. animal. But, so this was a, that was a snake that I'd seen before. Um, the owner, pulled it out of a pillowcase and stuck his hand out and I took a snake hook and I stood the snake hook up against my thigh and I took my left hand because I figure because that's my thing if I'm going to get tagged it ain't going to be my right hand that's for sure yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I, I had him place the snake in my left hand and the snake immediately went I don't want to say it went limp but it was almost like oh I'm in a tree I don't want to be here I got to get out and started to slither away so instead of grabbing and restraining, 
I let the animal do it. And I was going to take the snake hook off my thigh and, and use the snake hook, but I wound up using my right hand instead. And I just kind of treadmilled, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the photo that you're seeing is, is that treadmill action. Um, but there was a snake hook present. There will always be a snake hook present. I don't go to underground unless there's a snake hook present because I know whether I'm feeding rattlesnakes or I'm playing with Boiga, like there's a there's a high probability that I'm gonna need that snake hook. Mm-hmm. And I'm not gonna rely on them having one for sale or one that's some rusty one that's behind the counter that no one's touched in 10 years. No, yeah, I, I rely on my handcrafted fine venom life care product. So indeed. Indeed. Uh, there was something I was gonna say more about. Boiga. Oh, and I was going to ask you in relation to your uh, cyania. So when I had my cyanodime, if I went in that cage, oh, he was going to take my head off. So what I would do is I would use a snake hook. I would remove him from the enclosure via tailing him, put him in the venomous trash can, do cage maintenance, <coughs> excuse me, take him out. But when I take him out, I would gauge his, his stress level. And if he was not puffed up or he wasn't wagging his tail, I would do a little bit of treadmill just to kind of get more human interaction. And then I would treadmill him back into his cage. And I felt, I feel Mm -hmm. like doing that is um, mentally and physically preparing the animal for if you had to go hands-on rough. You see what I'm saying? If for whatever reason you're using a snake and the snake breaks, that snake is becoming accustomed to feeling the touch of a human hand and not reacting adversely to the touch of a human hand. You may still be a threat to the animal. You may still be a predator of sorts, but at least it's learning that the human touch is not offensive. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like if I ever did get into Boyga again, um, I would do something very, very similar to that, you know, and just slowly acclimate the human touch. Almost like, a, you know, we talk about with the Gila monsters, wearing a glove to mask the heat of your hand. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't necessarily do that with Boiga, but it's the same concept of if it has the chance to slither across the hot human skin and it's feeling that all the time, it's going to get desensitized to it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So... Henry I, just, says, I think about up. it, you know, with big melanota, with big false water cobras. Uh, it doesn't big cyania, big cyanodon. I don't think it really matters if they're rear fanged or not. They get to a size to where if you get bit, it's yeah, you're gonna have some something's gonna happen. That's it, Ryan Cox. Whether it protein, just protein, whether it just swells up and you get super itchy, or whether it just starts turning into a million blisters and you got to go to the hospital like it's the the rear fang thing is irrelevant after a certain size i think you know especially yeah. with, with in regards to boiga and hydrodynasties and stuff like that sure sure i don't you know it, it, it gets to a point where that just that's irrelevant you know it's like this yeah. is especially big cyanodon and stuff like big false water cobras um like it's gonna suck. Yeah. More than likely. Yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent, man. And I'm sure there's gonna be people that listen to this and they're like, Oh, you're a bitch. Whatever. Yeah, oh that's right. I forgot. Uh Henry got 
sliced by uh, Dendrophila Dendrophila. And uh, it was a freak occurrence. He was doing routine maintenance, I believe. And Henry, correct me if I'm wrong. And he, I don't want to insult Henry, but he he misgaged the striking distance of the specimen at hand. And it launched out of a vision cage and had easily over two-thirds of its body clear the threshold. And it sliced his finger. It didn't actually latch on. And uh, he had some minor bleeding, but no envenomation. And I mean, that was that was luck. You know what I mean? He moved at just the right time, and it couldn't latch on. Henry says, no, 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 that's, that's not what happened. I thought, that, I thought that's what happened. I didn't see it. I walked no, in. No, you yeah. said it was a dendroaspis. Ah, uh, very funny. So. Henry, you going to tell us what's up or what? I was going to say, I'm like kind of waiting for the. Yeah. Waiting for the, the, the details. Yeah. This would be an all right time to call me on my phone, Henry, if you really wanted to. Do, 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 do. Should I just call him? <laughs> Go for it. I don't I don't think he got any venom. That was the Oh wait. Oh, there it is. <laughs> he said he was standing offset to the opening. He shot out, turned forty five degrees midair, and latched onto his finger. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I believe it. They're very springy. Very springy. Very springy. Well, sir, we're at 2.30. We are at 2.30. Is there anything you'd like to touch base on before we um, say our goodbyes? THP 139 is happening this week uh i actually have jen davis lined up to come on here next episode okay um it's one of brent's friends she's really cool she is in north carolina and does some stuff with venomous and helps with some of the legislation stuff at least on our on our front cool um, so it's gonna be good awesome um i will be shipping out the winnings to the winners tomorrow or within the next couple of days. Um, thank you to all who participated. Thank you for everyone who's tuned in. Thank you for everyone who's listening after the fact. We've hit over 200,000 plays on SoundCloud. Wow. Which is just crazy. I think we're already over 200,001. So. That's awesome. It's crazy, man. It's just. Yeah. It's only been growing since Daytona. It's only it's just been exploding. So I love it. Made a difference. Thank you to everyone for real. We will hit everybody up again in your ears Thursday night for THP 139. Is that what I just said? Yeah. I believe we have Connor Wardle lined up, so that'll be cool. We're gonna talk about some of the, the cool and interesting stuff he's keeping. He's, uh, he's in Texas, so he's in the Holy Land. Nice. That'll be good. So Awesome. 
Don't forget to check out the fine folks, the Gendra, the Puget Sound Pathoms. Top corner of your screen. Yeah. Yeah. And hey, man, we got four, three more episodes until 100. Yeah, we got to, we got to, we'll talk about that tomorrow or something. We'll, we'll yeah. figure something out. Yeah, man. Rock and roll. Gonna have to get us something fancy to smoke for episode 100. 100%. 100%. So thank you, everybody. Thanks, y'all. Bye.